If you would, take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'm very excited for this study. Um, it's just one of those things, maybe as a word nerd, that just <laughs> excites me, I don't know. But as one feller said, words mean stuff. <laughs> and um, we say that, and it's funny, but it's true. Words, words are very important. And uh, God uses words specific words for specific reasons. And there are many wonderful truths in the Bible that you will be able to learn and grow in the Christian faith. And, uh, and, and these, sometimes these little words don't really make that much of a difference. Sometimes they do. And tonight we're going to be looking at a word that really does make a big difference in understanding uh, the doctrine of salvation and really the doctrine of the Bible as a whole, understanding uh, how it is that God works out this plan of redemption. So, you know, a number of weeks ago, I began a series on redemption, accomplished, and applied, and we've had some things that have come up, and I, I haven't been able to continue that, but um, when I address you on Wednesday nights, Lord willing, I'm going to be speaking to you from this series of studies. It's inspired by the book uh, that was written by John Murray, Professor John Murray, um, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. That was the name of the book. But as I said in the beginning, I'm not teaching the book. I'm teaching the material of the book. So you don't need to read the book to be able to follow along. If you do want to read the book, that's phenomenal. Um, but before we get into the meat of the book, he starts off by talking about the necessity of the atonement. Before we get into that, there's a preliminary study that I want us to do. It's something that's really fascinating to me. If it puts you to sleep, that's okay. I'm going to enjoy it. So uh, hopefully you will too, though. And that it has to do with the usage of the word world in the Gospel of John. Very interesting study. So you probably already know which verse I'm about to direct your attention to. Uh, and that is, of course, verse 16. But let me read some context for you. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. So uh, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through uh, but, but that the world through him might be saved. So we see there in verses 16 and 17, the world is used just three times. And I'll go ahead and tell you, the Greek word for world is the word cosmos. It's, uh, you, you see in this word, you see uh, the word cosmetology. Um, that's where we get that word cosmos. It, it is the Greek word that is used for world. And a lot of people would assume that the term has only one usage. And the default assumption is that that usage is all people without any exception whatsoever. Uh, and many will use this passage in verse 16 to claim a universal atonement. That is that Christ has died for everyone without exception, no ifs, ands, or buts. 
Well, if this were the only verse in the Bible, it would be that simple. But this is not the only verse in the Bible. And one of the things that we learn when we study the scriptures is something called the analogy of scripture or the analogia scriptura, which teaches us that scripture interprets scripture. Just like a diamond is what they use to cut a diamond, so the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So when you're reading the Bible and you come across a word and you're wondering, what in the world does that word mean? Well, the best thing for you to do is to see how it's used consistently throughout the context of the Bible. And so what I want to do tonight is just to show you how John uses this word world. Now, I'm going to be asking you to turn to quite a few places, and it really will benefit you to actually turn there. I've got some primary texts and some cross-references. You don't have to follow me on the cross-references, but the primary texts, it really will help you to, to follow along there. Now... Um, the good thing is it's all in John, so you're not going to have to do too much turning. You'll just be flipping a few pages here and there. But let me go ahead and tell you that the word world has ten different meanings in the Gospel of John alone. In the Gospel of John, he uses the word world ten different ways. And if you think about that, it sounds surprising, but think about the different ways, even in the English language, that we use the term world. When we use the term world, we're not always talking about the same exact thing. And so too it is in the Gospel of John. Um, only, one of these, only one of these means all the people living in the world without exception. That is one of the usages, but that's only one of the usages. Um, and so if John 3.16 means, I'm just giving you a little appetizer before we get into this, but if John 3.16 means, as some suppose, that God loves all people without exception, who have lived and who have ever lived and who ever will live, then how do we explain a verse like Romans 9.13, which says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God doesn't contradict himself. Um, are we to say that God loves those souls right now who are suffering in hell? Right? So uh, we need to be careful and we need to use God's words the way that God uses his words. The word cosmos is used 185 times in the New Testament. 78 times the word cosmos is found in the Gospel of John, 8 times in Matthew, 3 times in Mark, and 3 times in Luke, 24 times in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and 3 in the book of the Revelation. That means that John uses the word cosmos 105 out of the 185 times that word is found in the New Testament. So if you want to understand Johannian theology, I just taught you something really fancy. If you want to sound really smart, uh, talk about Johannian theology. That just means stuff that John wrote, okay? So there you go. There's your big word for the day. But if you want to understand uh, John's writings, this idea of cosmos, this definition of cosmos is really important because you're going to run into it a lot. So uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you now the 10 different ways that he uses the word world. So turn to John 1 in verse 10. The first usage of the word world refers to the entire universe, the entire physical universe. Notice in, in John 1 and verse 10, and this is an interesting verse because in this one verse, he uses the word world three different ways. Notice what he says. He says, 
he, this is referring to Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And it's the second use of the word world here that is uh, synonymous with the entire universe. The entire universe was made through him. Now, why could not the third usage of the word world in John 10, when it says the world did not know him, why is that not talking about the entire universe? Well, because physical things like trees and stars and planets don't have the capacity to know. They don't have the capacity of knowledge. So you see even in that one verse that there's there's obviously a distinction there. Um, but when we read like, for instance, in Colossians 1, where it says all things were made through him and without him was nothing made, right? And that's, of course, referring to all the principalities and powers and all of created being. It's referring to the entire universe. So the first usage of John is this, this word of the entire universe. Uh, the usage of cosmos that refers to everything that has ever been made. Notice uh, back up in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And you can cross-reference this with John 17.5. John 17.5, which says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Right? So the first use of the word world refers to the entire universe, everything that has ever been created. Okay, turn now to John 13 and verse 1. John 13, 1, the second usage of the word world refers to the physical earth. The physical earth. This planet that you and I are living on right now uh, is the usage of the word world in John 13 and verse 1. Notice what it says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world, that's important. This world. He's going to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So Jesus is going to leave this physical world. That's a wonderful truth in and of itself that the Son of God walked on this world. He became incarnate and he dwelt among us in the flesh. But he's not on this world anymore, at least not in his physical body. He, his physical body, where's the physical body? It's at the right hand of the Father. He departed from this world. He ascended up back into heaven. And we can see this same usage in John 16 and verse 33. John 16, 33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then in John 21, 25, John 21, 25 says to us, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. I, I, I really love that verse. It, it testifies to us just the wonders of Jesus' earthly ministry. And John, of course, is perhaps speaking with a little bit of exaggeration, a little bit of hyperbole. But what John is saying is that 
Uh, if you were to really record all of the wonderful things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, this physical world is not big enough to contain the books that would be written. right? And that, that's, of course, referring to the physical world. Okay, now turn to John 12 and verse 31. John 12 and verse 31. The third usage of the term world refers to the world system. So now we're starting to move away from just uh, physical created things and we're starting to get into uh, other uses of the term world, of the term cosmos or cosmos. And in John 12, 31, the Bible says this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, when Jesus comes back, he's not going to judge the dirt in the ground. He's not going to judge the trees. He's not going to judge the the clouds. He's not going to even judge the animals or the fish of the sea. In fact, he's not going to judge them because they've never disobeyed him. When, When God commanded the fish to swallow up Jonah, the fish perfectly obeyed. You and I are the only ones that have ever actually disobeyed God. Uh, But there is this truth all throughout Scripture, and this is really a lesson in and of itself, that there is an organized system of evil, which is referred to in the Bible as the system of this world, over which Satan rules as the God of this age. He's referred to, even, as the God of this world. And this world system is an invisible kingdom of darkness. It is an anti-God, anti-Christ, satanic kingdom that we cannot see with the physical eye, but it's very real and it's very much there. And we fight against it and we war against it. Paul said, you know, our warfare is not carnal. We don't fight with flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers and strongholds. And um, Satan is the God of this kingdom. But what we find in this verse is that this kingdom is already a defeated kingdom. It's already a defeated kingdom. This is very important for us to understand. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan is the god of this world. But many people misinterpret that and they give Satan far too much power. They give him far too much authority as the god of this world. Because they don't understand the proper usage of the term world. And so they say, well, you know, Jesus is is God of my heart, but Satan is the God of everything else. And they say, Satan's the God even of this physical world, as if Satan controls the physical world. He emphatically does not. God is the God of this world, and he's the sovereign of this world. And we're talking about the physically created world. Um. This, by the way, certainly cannot be the usage of cosmos in John 3.16. God so loved the evil, satanic kingdom of darkness that he sent his son into the world? Well, absolutely not. That evil, satanic, anti-Christian kingdom of darkness will never believe in Christ, mm-hmm. right? So what I'm trying to point out to you here is that the, the usage of cosmos is different depending on the context and depending on where it's used. This evil world system does not believe on Christ. In fact, it's the great enemy of Christ and his people. We see this also in John 14, John 14 and verse 30, where the Bible says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And then in John 16, 11, John 16, 11, 
of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So we see there that uh, one of the usages of the term world refers to this evil worldly system. Okay, turn with me to John 7 and verse 7. John 7 and verse 7. The fourth usage of the term world refers to all humanity excluding believers. All humanity excluding believers. Look at verse 7 of John 7. John 7, 7. Jesus says, it's also interesting that that uh, most of these verses that I'm, I'm giving you are words that Christ spoke during his earthly ministry. So it's not only does John use the term world in these different ways, but Jesus in his own preaching and teaching apparently used the term cosmos in a variety of ways. John 7, 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you. Notice the distinction. There's the world and then there's you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. So we see that Jesus is drawing a distinction here between you and the world. Between you and the world. The you is a reference to believers or his disciples. And when Jesus says the world cannot hate you, what he means is that the world hates you because it hates me. It cannot hate you for the sake of just you, but it hates you because of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that as much, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Uh, therefore, the hatred of unbelievers towards Christians is really their hatred towards Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really shouldn't alleviate the feeling for us. Uh, we shouldn't look at that and say, I'm glad they don't hate me. It's actually far more worse for them. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd much rather them just hate me. Um, but the, the truth is, they hate Christ. And when we exhibit Christ, and when we preach Christ, and when we live like Christ, we should expect to receive the hatred from the world. We live in a society where there's a lot of grace that's a vestige from the past. We live in a society where you can be a Christian, and you can live the Christian life, and even lost people in society have somewhat of a respect for Christian values. And sometimes we're almost shocked when we receive true hatred from the world for the sake of being Christians in America. We're not used to it. I believe that unless the Lord revives our country, we're going to have to get used to it sooner than later. Um, And we already are seeing that on certain issues, you know, with all of the sexual identity crisis that's going on in America today. You speak the truth of the Bible. You say what Jesus said, and you will be hated by the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shouldn't surprise us. And it ha- certainly hasn't surprised Christians for the last 2,000 years. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you just for being you, but it's going to hate you because I testify of it that its works are evil. We see this usage in John fifteen eighteen. John 15, 18, that wonderful passage there when Jesus is with his disciples just hours before his arrest. He says, if the world hates you, again, there's the distinction. There's you and then there's the world. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Mm -hmm. So there's that distinction. Again, it's all humanity that excludes believers. Um, Before I move on to number five, some of you might be thinking, well, 
That's a little harsh, don't you think, to say that all lost people hate Christians? Well, um, I had a pastor one time that, that made this statement. And I'll never forget the way he said it because it just, it just shook me. Um, you think of someone like Adolf Hitler who committed all sorts of atrocities against humanity. And then you think of just your average unbeliever. Maybe even someone, make it personal, and think of someone that you love, that you know, and that by the world standards, they're a pretty good person, right? And you would say, well, they would never commit those atrocities. And I'll never forget when Pastor Rass said, well, they might not be as decayed as Adolf Hitler was, but they have the same exact heart. same exact heart to put it in South Georgia theological terminology there's various stages of decay but there's only one kind of dead and the Bible's clear that the unregenerate human heart is dead in trespasses and sins and the longer something is dead the worse it's going to stink <laughs> and the more you embrace your depravity the, the more depraved you'll become. Mm -hmm. But apart from the saving grace of God, you have the same heart. And that's a very stark reality. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that all humanity, there's a sense in which all humanity hates the things of God and hates Christ on a very real level. Okay, number five, turn with me to John 12 and verse 19. John 12 and verse 19. The fifth usage of the word, we're making good time here, we're already halfway through. The fifth usage of the term world refers to a large group, just a large group that doesn't include all the people of the world, every single person in the world, but just a, a large group. Notice John twelve nineteen. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. The Pharisees are talking amongst themselves and they're trying to figure out how they can put an end to the, the ministry of Christ. And they're kind of just uh, uh, having a little pity party because they're seeing the multitudes that are following Jesus um, and they, they describe that as the world. The whole world has gone after them. And we use the term world like that, don't we? We do it all the time. Uh, you, you know, we might say, uh, we might speak of a certain celebrity. We might say, well, the whole world knows who they are. You know, um, well, there's probably someone who legitimately doesn't. But everyone knows what you mean when you use that terminology. But when we're reading the Bible, we sometimes forget that um, though it's infallibly inspired by God, God chose human authors to record his word and he preserve their own diction and their own vocabulary. So they wrote as men. They wrote the infallible word of God as men. That's one, one of the reasons why the Bible is so marvelous. Uh, and John uses this term world. The distinction here is, um, is not all without exception, but it's just simply a large group. Um, also, it's interesting that you know this verse was spoken by people who did not go after him. It was spoken by people who were adamantly opposed to him. So obviously, they're separating themselves from the world. When they say the whole world has gone after him, they're not including themselves in that. They're obviously just talking about a large group. Okay, turn with me to John 7 and verse 34. John 7 and verse 34. Number 6. 
one of the usages of the term world is just the general public. The general public. And we, again, we use that term uh, quite often as well. John 7, verses 3 and 4. John 7, verses 3 and 4. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the world. The distinction here is between things that are done among a smaller private group and things that are done openly. To, to illustrate this, I could say, on Sundays, I preach to the church. But when we have our evangelistic outreach, I preach to the whole world. Now, I don't preach to everyone who lives in the world, um, but hypothetically I do, because when I'm out there preaching at Walmart, I have no idea who might walk by, who might avail themselves to the preaching. And in that sense, I'm preaching to the whole world without exception. There's, there's no limitations. You don't have to come in the door of the church to hear the preaching. It's out in the world to the general public. Um, we see this usage in John 14 and verse 22. John 14 and verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. I, I, I always get a, get a little chuckle whenever I see that. I, I, I bet that Judas is so thankful that God allowed uh, allowed John to include that not Iscariot in there, right? He doesn't want to be confused with that guy. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You're, you're, in other words, the disciples are saying, Jesus, you're doing all of these miracles and we're witnessing it and you're giving us all these teachings and these parables and we're understanding, but you're not giving that to the general public. Right? To the world. Turn to John 4, verses 39 through 42. John 4, verses 39 through 42. And by the way, I, I can, if anybody wants these notes, I can email you these notes after we're done uh, if you'd like to have those. Because I know that I'm asking you to turn to an astronomically large number of places, and I, I typically never do that. So, John 4, verses 39. Through 42. This is, of course, the story of the woman at the well. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. <laughs> so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Number seven, the seventh usage, is Jews and Gentiles. The term world oftentimes is used to refer to Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. Obviously, this cannot be a reference to all the people of the world without exception, or this would be teaching universalism. Mm -hmm. If Jesus was the Savior of the world, meaning every human being that's ever lived, hell would be empty. Mm -hmm. Some say, well, this means he's potentially the Savior of the world. Mm -hmm. He could possibly be the Savior of the world. 
He's the Savior of the world if you believe in him. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that. It says he is the Savior of the world. The key to understanding verse 42 is verse 22. Because who did Jesus say this to? He said this to a Samaritan. Someone who is not a true Jew. Someone who is a half Jew. And in verse 22, he says to the woman, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So Jesus is kind of testing her here a little bit, right? He says, salvation is of the Jews. Now he says that to a Samaritan. And then, of course, uh, he, of course, saves her to show her the truth that a true Jew, a true Jew is not one who is a physical descendant of Abraham, but it is someone uh, who has faith in Abraham's God. And so salvation is of the Jews, but the true Jew is not one who is circumcised after the flesh, but circumcised after the Spirit. We see this also in John 1.29. John 1.29, in the famous pronouncement of John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene, the Bible says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and, and you have to put your, your mind, you have to put your ears in the context of a, of a first century Jew. Because John is talking about the Messiah. The Messiah of the Old Testament. The Messiah of Israel. And here's what John doesn't say. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the nation of Israel. He doesn't say that. He says... Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jew and Gentile. And that, of course, encompasses everything else, because if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so what we see here is that Jesus is an international Savior. He saves people from every ethnicity, every tongue, every tribe, and every kindred. He doesn't just take away the sins of those who are physical descendants of Abraham, he takes away the sins of all, wherever they're from, who call upon him. We have a universal gospel. We have an international gospel. It does not matter where you're from. It does not matter what country you reside in. It does not matter what language you speak. It does not matter uh, how much melanin you have flowing through your, your blood. It does not matter how black you are, how white you are, how whatever you are in between. Jesus is the Savior that saves all men from all over. Um, what this doesn't mean is that he's the Savior of the world, again, without exception. Of all men without exception. He's the sa- it means that he's the Savior of all men without distinction, but not without exception. Because there, just as there are saved people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and ethnicity and background, There's also lost people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and ethnicity and background. Heaven will be just as diverse as hell. (laughs) And so that's the seventh definition, Jews and Gentiles. Number eight, turn with me to John 3 again, back to where we started as we round this up. John 3, the eighth definition of the word cosmos, the word world, refers to the realm of mankind. The realm of mankind as contrasted with the realm of heavenly and angelic beings. 
So that, that helps you to understand because we understand there's a, there's a spiritual realm, there's an angelic realm, but then there's also a human realm. And we see this really all throughout John 3. Look at verse 12 again. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is drawing a distinction between earthly things and heavenly things. Uh, earthly thing. George Washington was the first president of the United States. Heavenly thing. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see the difference, right? Verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So he's drawing this contrast between the two realms. Verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Referring back of course, to Moses lifting up the serpent. And again, what's so interesting about that is, is what did you need to do to be saved by that bronze serpent? You just needed to look, right? Just, just look and live. Moses lifted it up indiscriminately. But only those who believed looked and lived. So we see the distinction there. You could say in various contexts that Moses lifted up that serpent for the whole world. But only those who believed were the ones who were saved. And then in verse 16, For God so loved the world. The world here is a reference to the realm of mankind. God is the creator of the human race, and he loves the human race. God does love the human race. He loves humanity. But you must not fail to see the distinction in saying that God loves the human race. That is different than saying God loves every human being individually the same. There's a difference there, and it's an important distinction that we need to make. I I promise you, I'm not splitting hairs tonight. This This is very important for understanding the doctrine of redemption. Because again, we know that there are actually specific individuals that God tells us he doesn't love. In Romans 9 and verse 13, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so, in what sense then does God love the world? Well, not in an individual way, but in a broad corporate way. I could illustrate it for you like this. Um, I, I could say, and some of you might say, I love America. But what that doesn't mean is that I have an equal love for every individual American. That would be impossible. But it means that I love this realm called America, this culture called the American culture. I love this concept of America. I love what America stands for, for instance. We could say that, right? Well, that's the sense in which God says, I love the world. I love the world. Um, Verse 17 really explains this. And I'm going to give you a hint. There's there's, there's really kind of two usages of the term cosmos, even in verse 16, and we'll see that in a minute. But the primary thrust of this is that it's that heavenly realm. So verse 17, notice it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, or but that the world through him might be saved. Mm-hmm. Jesus was sent into the realm of humanity. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That, that, that not only did, did God purpose our salvation, but he sent a Savior to dwell among us, to condescend, to, to be able to become Emmanuel, God with us. Mm-hmm. 
Why? Because he had a love for this realm. He had a love for this realm. We see that again in in verse 10 of chapter 1. Remember I told you that there were uh, several usages of the term world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world did not know him. That's why he came to them. Because this humanly realm didn't know him. So he came to them. When we could not go to where he was, he came to us. Okay, turn with me to John 17, 9. Number 9, we've got two more. John 17, 9. The ninth usage of the term world refers to the non-elect only. Those whom, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God passed over. John 17, 9. Notice the Bible says, Jesus here saying, I pray for them, he's he's talking to his father, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, that's a hard truth for some to swallow, but I don't know how much more clear our Lord could be. He simply says, I pray for the ones that you, Father, have given me, I don't pray for the world. My prayer life is specific. (laughs) My intercession is specific. And Jesus here makes a distinction between those whom the Father had given him and the rest of the world whom the Father had passed over. Those who are not given to the Son, those whom Christ does not pray for, those whom Christ does not intercede for on the cross of Calvary. It is a group that will never be saved because they will never believe in Christ. Obviously, then, this cannot be the meaning of John 3.16. That's not what he means in John 3.16. Okay, so, tenth and lastly, John 3, turn back to John 3, and look at verse 17 again. We looked at one of the usages of the term world in verse 17. But now we see the, the second usage of the world in verse 17. And the tenth and final way that the word world is used in the Gospel of John is in reference to the elect of God only. To the elect of God only. Again, this is a place where cosmos is used in the same verse twice, in two different ways. So, notice it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Well, as we've seen, the the first usage refers to the uh, human realm, but this final usage, when it says that the world through him might be saved, he's referring to the elect of God, those whom the Father had given him from before the foundation of the world. Now, you say, well, why use the term uh, these different ways, even in this same verse? Because in order for Jesus to save the elect, he had to come in to the human realm because that's where the elect were. That's where they live. They live amongst the rest of the world. And God's intent in sending his son into the world was not to save this human realm. The gospel is not a social gospel that just saves culture or saves uh, values. When, a lot of times when we talk about saving America, we're not talking about saving human lives. Although that's maybe part of it on some issues. But what are we talking about when we're talking about saving America? 
I'm talking about saving American values, right? Saving American culture. Well, let me tell you, that's not what the gospel is intended to do. The gospel came to save people. The gospel didn't just come to save the human realm. It came to save individual, specific souls. <laughs> Jesus saved a specific people group that the Father had given him from before the foundation of the world. And God's intent in sending his Son into the world was that his Son, Jesus Christ, would come to save those whom he had given him in eternity past. I don't know a better place to illustrate this to you than in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4, the Bible says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice, where do all of our blessings come from? They come from God in Christ. From God in Christ. Verse 4, just as He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him before... Chose us in Him. So, we were elected, chosen in Him. He chose us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Right? So, we see here that, uh, that... These are the the ones that Jesus has come to redeem. He came to redeem them because he was their representative. They were in him. He he assumed their position. He came to this earth. He lived a sinless life on their behalf. He went to the cross on their behalf. He died and suffered under the wrath of God on their behalf. He was buried. And when he was buried, they were buried. And when he rose again, they rose again. And he takes them on and he assumes their identity, and they take on His identity. What a glorious truth this is in the Word of God. God's intent in sending His Son was not contrary to the, this eternal plan before the foundation of the world. You, you must understand that salvation is a Trinitarian work. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working in perfect harmony. They're not working against each other. You, you, you want to deny this truth, but you, you simply can't. It's, it's right there in the Bible. There was a group that God chose before the foundation of the world. And when Jesus came into the world, he did not come to die for another group besides the one that the Father chose. And then the Holy Spirit did not come to apply redemption to some third group that's different from the Father's group and the Son's group so that you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working in disunity to save three different groups of people. That would be like trying to get on a horse and ride out in three directions at the same time. You would confuse the horse and you'd confuse yourself and you'd probably fall off. And I think a lot of theologians who don't have their soteriology straight have fallen off the theological train. And so we need to understand uh, that, that this is, by the way, not a doctrine to get upset about. This is a doctrine to, to glory in and rejoice in. Because it teaches us that, that while we were yet sinners, while we could do nothing for ourselves, God was at work redeeming us and saving us and uh, working out this perfect plan of salvation. And we see this also 
you don't have to turn there, but in John 6 and verse 33, John 6 and verse 33, we see that Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Notice it doesn't say he offers life. He gives life to the world. And this world here is that world of believers. That world of believers that's located within the humanly realm, he will surely give life to them. And we see that in John uh, John 3, 17 and John 12 and 47. So which meaning of the term world does John use in John 3 and verse 16? Well, I've already told you, he uses the, the, the definition of, of the heavenly realm. But there's a phrase in verse 16. The phrase is, whosoever believeth, or whosoever believes. And that phrase introduces a qualifying statement. So we have the heavenly realm. Jesus came into the heavenly realm, but he's going to do something And those who receive the effects of what he's done are defined by this qualifying statement of whoever believes. Whoever believes. This phrase speaks of a group within the realm of mankind. It is the group that believes on Christ and it is the group that is saved by Christ. This group is the world of believers who are the elect of God. So, Why is it appropriate to identify both usages of cosmos to John 3.16? Well, the answer is very simple, because the elect live in this earthly realm, and they live throughout all of human history. So, Jesus was sent into the world, and that obviously cannot refer, in John 3.17, that obviously cannot refer to the elect. Jesus was not sent into the elect, he was sent into the humanly realm on a rescue mission to bring out his people. He is the good shepherd. And he goes to the pastures. And there is this mass of sheep that are out. But he, as the good shepherd, begins calling his sheep. And they hear his voice. And they follow him. Let me close by turning you to Romans 5. Romans 5 and verses 8 through 11. It'll be the last thing I show you tonight. We've looked at the ten different ways that John uses the term world, and this really will help us as we get into the study of redemption accomplished and applied and begin to look at the atonement of Christ, especially when we look at the extent of his atonement and the the purpose of his atonement. But in Romans 5, verses 8 and 11, notice the, the personal words that the Apostle Paul uses here. Romans 8, or Romans 5 and verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He died for us. God demonstrates his love toward us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved by wrath through him. Who's going to be saved by wrath through him? We are. We are. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we are. We're reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. 
How can Paul speak with such definitive terms? There, there is not one shred of doubt in Paul's mind. Because Paul understands that the world that Jesus has come to save is this world of believers, and they will be saved because they're saved by the power of a sovereign God. Now, I understand that this is a truth uh, that many in our day seek to reject and that has been forgotten by and large in our day. Um, But it's really not even that difficult to teach and explain. It's all over the Bible. It's all over your New Testament. And when you really begin to grasp this, what an encouragement it is to your heart that your salvation was not dependent on any good works that you performed. It was not dependent on any any deed that you did, but it, it was dependent on the goodness and the grace of God who loved you while you were yet a sinner. And your staying in the Christian faith is not based on your continued perfected obedience. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But He holds you fast because... You are held in the hand of the Son and the hand of the Father and sealed about with the Holy Spirit and He will give you uh, that which you will receive in glory and you will be with Him if you are in Christ and you are believing in Him. So I uh, wanted to show you this tonight. Hope it was, uh, was a blessing. Uh, next time when we study Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, we can get into the necessity of the atonement. But let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer and then uh, if anybody has some questions, we can, we can take those. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. We love you and we praise you for this wonderful truth. I, I thank you for, uh, for the Bible. I thank you that you've given us a book with words in it and that you have um, illuminated minds in church history by the power of the Spirit to uh, study out and understand these words. And I pray that you would help us to, to care a lot about your word and uh, to, to live by it. And may we understand that it is our bread that feeds us. And, Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.